Get lit. Good morning, good evening, and everything in between. Welcome back to episode four of the Get Lit podcast, a podcast where we explore the stories behind some of the most famous works of literature and the authors who wrote them. I'm your host, Stephanie Spars, here with my co-host... John Stricker. Good job. And I bribed him tonight with cheesecake and pasta, a winning combination for anyone. For sure. Who likes food. Um, So this week, we are going to be actually talking about someone that I didn't tell John at all about, which will be kind of fun. So, John, are you ready? I'm ready. We are going to be doing Flannery O'Connor. Ooh, Um, interesting. Do you know... Anything about her? I read A Good Man is Hard to Find mm-hmm. a long time ago, mm-hmm. and I know that she's Catholic, and that's a big part of her story, right? Yep. And she was a little bit sickly. That's mm-hmm. all I know. Great. And thank you so much for tuning in to the yep. Get Lit <laughs> We'll see you next yes. week. That was everything. <laughs> that was every. John did that one, and I think he did a great job. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I'm excited to learn more about her. Great. So, Mary Flannery O'Connor, her actual first name is Mary, um, was born on March 25th, 1925 in Savannah, Georgia. Um, We have some awesome pictures from her birth home up on the Instagram um, and posted on Twitter. So feel free to check those out if you want the opportunity to see um, into her home. They've restored it and it's a really cool museum now. So you can go down if you're ever in Savannah and check it out. Cool. Um, But she's born Mary Flannery O'Connor to Regina Klein and Edward F. O'Connor. She is the only child of that family. And as John pointed out to us earlier, she was indeed a part of a Roman Catholic family, very prominent in that area at that time. Uh, Throughout her adolescence, she winds up in Savannah, um, but her father has lupus, which actually winds up killing her down the line. Spoiler alert, I guess we know she's dead, but um, kills her father and then eventually will kill her. But um, because of her father's lupus, the family relocates um, to Milledgeville, which is in Georgia as well. Milledgeville. Milledgeville. There's a, that's a mouthful. Um, So that's in 1938. Uh, Her mother is from that area and it's a little bit more rural. So hopefully, you know, could have helped her father but unfortunately, um, three years later, he does die um, because of the disease, which had a huge impact. Flannery O'Connor was really close to her father, and that death had a huge impact on her. Um, but nevertheless, she continues her education. She goes to Georgia State College for Women, which is now Georgia College and State University. Um, and she gets a very valuable degree in social studies. Um, coming from a fellow liberal arts major, I can tell you don't do it. I'm kidding. Do it. Follow your dream. That's what Stephanie meant. Unless it's a stupid dream. Then you shouldn't do it. <laughs> Actually, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Ask someone to evaluate your dream and then chase it if it doesn't, if it's not dumb. Yes. Yeah. So um, she has this accelerated program that she's a part of and in 1945 graduates with her degree in social studies. Um, And during her time at this particular college, she uh, really launches her career 
initially as an editor and a cartoonist for the Corinthian, which was the college's literary magazine. Um, so she provides cartoons for almost every single issue of the campus newspaper. Her cartoons appear in the yearbook and the Corinthian, um, and actually paper the walls of the student lounge as well. Um, so she actually kind of gets her start in the arts, in the literal arts, as opposed to through writing, which is what we know her now. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. I didn't know that. Um, Do they have a collection of any of these early cartoons? I think that'd be pretty interesting to look at. I have no idea. I think that would be really cool. I want, It might be down at the college. It wouldn't surprise me if their library had them in the archives or something. Um, but yeah, so she got her start there. Um, classmates of hers during this time describe her as very shy, but clever. And this is my favorite fact about her. Um, she was also known for her disdain for mediocrity and merciless attacks on affectation and triviality, which I think is awesome. Holy <laughs> so cow. She just didn't take it from no anyone. No nonsense. None. No mediocrity. There's no C with Flannery O'Connor. It's an A or nothing. Wow. Yeah. So I kind of want to put a poster in my classroom. Just with that when, quote on it? I, <laughs> I have an intense disdain for mediocrity. I will mercilessly attack your affectations and triviality, students. So please write good papers. Um, so that, I That's think, intense. is a great description. Uh, in 1945, O'Connor receives a scholarship to study journalism from the University of Iowa, which at the time was the State University of Iowa. Um, but she decided when she got there that she didn't particularly like journalism. That wasn't really her thing. Um, so she investigated and found the Writers' Workshop, which is a really famous initiative at the University of Iowa. Lots of really famous writers have come through there at some point in their careers, and Flannery O'Connor was no exception to that. Um, so she actually then enters the master's program in creative writing, and she publishes her first work, um, in Accent, which is a magazine, literary magazine, in 1946. And it was actually during this time that she starts going by Flannery instead of Mary. So up until this point, she was known as Mary to friends and family. Uh, but when she got there, she adopted Flannery as her sort of official pen name. While O'Connor was in this program, she was mentored by a man named Paul Engel, and he reflected on her work very positively, but he also dropped this very interesting tidbit um, that O'Connor was so shy and her voice was so nasal and Southern drawl so strong that he actually read her stories during workshops. Wow. Which I think is really interesting um, because I wonder if that was her choice or if that was his choice. Mm. Like, what if you got up to read a piece in class and your teacher was like, actually... You know, let me do that. Yeah. Let uh, me, you sit. The writing's fine. But you I'll, relax. Yeah, just, I'll take it from <laughs> I'll here. I'll take it. You're fine. Um, so he was the first, though, um, sort of despite this comment, to read the, uh, the drafts of what would become Wise Blood, which was her first novel published in 1952. So he commented on that and he provided her some feedback for it. So clearly um, they had a really positive relationship and one that heavily influenced O'Connor's work in a, in a really positive way. So she finishes this MFA in 1947 um, and she wins the Reinhardt Iowa Fiction Award for her first novel. Um, and then she gets accepted at Yado? Yado? 
it's an artist retreat and it's in Saratoga Springs, New York. And so she uh, completes a bunch of different work up there and goes up to work at a retreat um, to get her writing done, which honestly, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I wish someone, I wish that were a thing with grading. Like, oh, you need to grade all these papers? Like, we'll pay for a weekend up at a retreat. Go to Yadu and do your Yado. retreat. Yeah. <laughs> Yado. Ye- yeah. Yep. Yeet. Nope. <laughs> okay. Um, so after she finishes up at this retreat, she spends a little bit of time there. Um, she moves in to the apartment of Sally and Robert Fitzgerald in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Robert Fitzgerald was a really famous classics translator, um, and she lived with them for two years. Um, they were all Catholic, so that's, that worked out well. Um, and she was able to have her own space to do her work, but then also have folks to bounce her ideas off of. So it seemed like a nice roommate type situation where they were all sort of sharing ideas and and whatnot. So this period of her life is really, really productive. Um, She's writing a lot. She's thinking a lot. Um, However, this winds up getting interrupted. 1950, uh, her lupus flares up. So this point, steroid drugs are the only things that can treat this disease. So she did survive her first attack, but kind of after that returns to Milledgeville, your favorite place. Mm. Um, and she winds up living there for the rest of her life, which is like 10 years. But, um, for those 10 years, um, she lives and they call it Andalusia. That's the farm that her mother grew up on is kind of in the family. So she moves back there. Um, and one of the things I think is really cool is that she raises peafowl, a.k.a. peacocks, which really? is awesome. So she just has this farm where she writes awesome stories and just has some peacocks running about. That's the life. Right? I mean, without the lupus, but with the with the peacocks. Yeah, so minus she, lupus, yeah. Minus that. Um, So she, some kind of interesting facts about her life while she was living on this farm, which again is is about 10 years after this point when she moves into it. Um, Although she was able to travel a bit, um, kind of in short spurts, she was a really prolific correspondent. So she maintains her relationships with the Fitzgeralds, that family that she stayed with, and some other famous author friends. Um, and she really maintains those relationships through writing letters to them, which I think is really cool. Um, and some of these folks also help her with her writing kind of back and forth. Uh, but the nice thing that I also read was that she took time to respond to letters from young writers, which I think is just so cute that she's able to kind of have this mentor relationship with some, um, younger folks. And I just think that's really cool. Yeah. As a pen pal. Right. But your pen pal's like this world famous, amazing author. I think so cool. If you, okay. Who would your writing pen pal be? He's dead. All right. It'd be Vonnegut. (laughs) For sure. Um, great. You could have a dead. He probably won't write very many exciting things. (laughs) Stop it. You're the worst. (laughs) Um, great. I would, I would love to have Annie Dillard as a pen pal. Um, that would be great. Yeah. I think she would be my pick. Yeah. Yeah. 
during this time, in addition to working with all this correspondence, um, she also reviews theological works for the Georgia Bulletin, uh, which is the official publication of the Atlanta Diocese. Um, so she stays with these religious roots of hers. Um, she has increasing numbers of peacocks that she takes care of. And um, she also has visitors come to her. So she not only writes to other people, but people come to visit. And she advises them on literary stuff, but also spiritual stuff, which I think is kind of cool because I feel like that checks a lot of boxes for people. Yeah. Like one-stop shop. For sure. I mean, she seems like like this wise sort of sage for the people coming to visit her, almost like a pilgrimage. Yeah, I would go. Right. I'd road trip. Yeah, get to see some peacocks, get to talk about all kinds all of kinds things. of stuff, literature, read my fate. essay, and right. let's talk about fate. Um, so that was kind of her life. Um, but unfortunately, she attempted to get treatment for a fibroid a fibroid tumor. Um, that wound up reactivating the lupus. So in 1964, um, August 3rd to be specific, after spending several days in a coma, she winds up dying. Mm. Um, She's not married. She doesn't have any children. She has her peacock children and her literature, uh, but no no kid children. Uh, So she's buried in Milledgeville today in the Memory Hill Cemetery. So you can go see that. She's buried beside her father. Um, Her mom didn't die Uh, Until she was 99 years old, I think, um, in 1990. So she outlived her family members by like 40-something years, which I think is pretty wild. Terrible. Yes. Um, So some other sort of interesting things I think about her, Connor, include her literary influences. So most people associate her with the South, um, and that's really prevalent because one of her big influences was Faulkner, your fave man. Mm. Um, She was also influenced by Eudora Weltley, Caroline Gordon, with whom she actually had correspondence, um, an author named Catherine Ann Porter, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Joseph Conrad, and then two French guys. Um, Let's see how this pronunciation goes. Georges Bernados and Francois Morac, probably. Yeah. That's good. Sounds good. Sounds great. Um, so those uh, were those authors had influence on her. She read their work. Some of them she got to communicate with. Um, she worked really, really hard on her writing. She was really hard on herself. Um, she wrote every single morning. Um, and even when she was struggling with her disease, she really pushed herself to produce work and edit and revise Um, She's known for her Southern dialects in her work, along with her sense of irony. And she's got some really great comedic timing in her short stories as well, which is kind of funny because a lot of her work is pretty dark, um, but sort of dark comedies and that sort of thing. So she's kind of really known for that. Um, One of my favorite O'Connor quotes as I was doing research for this episode was when she was talking about some of the characters that she developed through an interview. Um, So a lot of her characters are struggling either economically, emotionally, or something like that. Um, But they live in a world which, when O'Connor said this, is where the good is under construction. I like that. Isn't that great? Yes. Right? Like, we're working. The good is under construction. It's coming along. But I think the reason that I like it is because it shows an active effort to make the world a better place. 
Right. But acknowledging that it's messy, it doesn't always go according to plan. And there's still work to do. Right. And it's something that we're actively doing. So I just really like that. Um, I feel like I should get you a sign for your office that says the good is under construction. Yes. I'll get you one of those. Do you think they sell those on Amazon? No, but they will now. <laughs> I will make it. Um, so over the course of her career, Flannery O'Connor wrote two novels, lots of collections of different articles and that sort of thing, and 31 short stories. Um, she also wrote more than 100 book reviews for various Catholic newspapers in Georgia. So for as much, kind of like Edgar Allan Poe, as much as she was known for her original work, she was also known as a reviewer. Um, not nearly as harsh as Poe, but clearly has the same sort of sense of intensity in her nature and, and expectations for writing in her work. Yeah, mediocrity will not stand. No. So that's kind of the introduction that I have to Flannery O'Connor and some of her work. Hopefully that was a fun surprise for you yes. um, to walk in totally blind to this one. Um but yeah, we uh, are having a great time recording this, and we have lots of plans for more fun special guests in the future, um, including John flipping the situation and guest starring as the host um, instead of the commentary in a couple weeks with Kurt Vonnegut. Big shoes to fill. Um, no. I wear like an eight. I have to fit my feet into very small shoes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay, got it. That's where the expectations are for the people listening for this. Oh, wow. So, um, except my mom. Thanks, mom. <laughs> so, um, feel free again to plug us and, and share this podcast with your friends and with your family, with your enemies, the people you don't like as a joke. Um, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we've got our SoundCloud up and running along with Spotify. Um, so we love to do this and look forward to putting out more work for you guys. Feel free again to reach out and continue that dialogue. If there are people you want to hear about, if there are things that you want to hear about, let us know. Um, we're happy to bring your voices into that as well. So thanks for listening and tuning in this week. And as always, thank you for keeping it lit.